Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today my guest is Ray Rhodes. Ray serves as the founding pastor of Grace Community Church in Dawsonville, Georgia, and he's the president of Nourished in the Word Ministries. Today we're talking to him about his new book. It's just published with Moody, titled Yours Till Heaven. It's the untold story of Charles and Susie Spurgeon. Uh, Ray, congratulations on the book and, and, and welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Zach. It's uh, great to be with you today. Great. Well, you've written a book that's, it's much more than a story of, of romance, but, but it's a story of a faithful marriage that endured a range of life seasons. Uh, it was a fruitful bond that, um, it was joyfully used for the service of Christ in his church. We've got a lot to discuss about the book and the Spurgeons. You're a Spurgeon expert, you might say, and um, and I know this book represents some of the fruit of, of your doctoral research, um, and, and you've really been studying the Spurgeons for some time now. But uh, before we get into the book, Ray, tell us something about yourself. Yes, I'm uh, married to my wife, Lori. We have six daughters, and we have five grandchildren, and one on the way, another on the way two son-in-laws, been married for 34 years almost, a pastor in Dawsonville, Georgia, north of Atlanta, Grace Community Church, and I'm involved in conference ministry and uh, teaching and, and speaking various events, and I've been writing for some time, and it's uh, it's been great to be with Moody Publishers for the two books now. They're an excellent publisher, and it's been, been a great experience, so good shout out to Moody Publishers. Great. Well, why don't we begin by first asking simply, who was Charles Spurgeon and who was Susie Spurgeon, and and why are Christians talking about them today? Right. Uh, good question. No, no one would. No one really knew Charles Spurgeon uh, to any extent prior to 1853. That's when he began to get a little bit of attention. But to go back a bit before that, Charles Spurgeon was born in 1834, June of 1834, and he died in 1892 at age 57. Uh, Susie, two and a half years older, was born in 1832, and she died in 1903. Essentially, Charles and Susie's lives were lived during the reign of Queen Victoria, almost all of their lives. Victoria came to the throne in 1837, and she died in 1901. But uh, Charles Spurgeon was from the uh, deep in the country, uh, countryside of England. And Susie Thompson was born in London and spent most all of her life in London, except for some excursions during her teenage years to Paris where she learned to speak French and became very acquainted with French culture. So very different uh, backgrounds, Spurgeon from the country, Susie from the city. And they were married in 1856 and uh, had two children, twin sons, and and was was married for 36 years. And really, from uh, backing up a bit again, from 1853, when Spurgeon preached his first ever sermon in London just as a guest preacher until he died in 1892. He was the most famous, uh, one of the most famous Victorians of his lifetime and uh, one of the most influential 
and famous people in all of the Victorian era. His fame reached across around the world. And Susie Thompson was his wife, and they uh, had a wonderful marriage and great support one for another in ministry. Well, as far as I know, there's not another book out there that that analyzes their marriage specifically. I know you get into some of that in in your your other book, Susie, um, but there was more to tell to that story, and uh, and and that's kind of what you address in this book, isn't it? It is. Uh, I think one of the treats for an author is to find a compelling topic, and to find a compelling topic that has not really been uh, written about very much. Uh, In contrast with Charles Spurgeon, and when he died in 1892, there was a new biography about him uh, every month for two years. So 24 biographies within two years, and Spurgeon's studies and books have continued to our day and time. Uh, Susie, on the other hand, uh, only one small biography ever written about her, and that was in 1903, the year of her death, by Charles Ray. It's been republished by Banner of Truth now. Uh, that's the only other book. So when I wrote Susie, The Life and Legacy of Susanna Spurgeon, that was the first ever full biography of her. And when it comes to the story of their marriage, uh, this is, as far as I know, the uh, the only book devoted singularly to, to their marriage. And I'm thankful to have had the opportunity to write that. Uh, pr- prior, I mean, most people knew that Charles Spurgeon was married. Most people who knew about Spurgeon knew he was married. They knew he was married to a, a, a girl named Susie or Susanna and that she was a, a great sufferer. She was afflicted for a, much of their marriage. And they probably knew that she gave away books to poor pastors. And that's about it. And so I was thankful that I was able to, to dig a little deeper and tell her story and now tell the story of their marriage. Great. Well, you have a chapter early on on their early years, their courtship and wedding, and um, you know, by all accounts, as, as you say, they had a joyful marriage, um, but it wasn't an effortless one. Um, and and despite the the newlywed bliss, as you talk about in in the in the first chapter, there's there's trials to come. There's suffering that would that would be down the road, and and so they needed to have a, a robust spirituality. Um, which is what you talk about in your second chapter. Um, talk to us about about their spiritual disciplines and and how they were able to en- endure, um, or how they would be used to endure uh, future suffering. Yeah, their spiritual disciplines was just foundational to the health, well being of their marriage and their ability to weather hard times. Both Charles and Susie were faithful uh, Bible readers. Uh, Susie read through the Bible every year, uh, essentially, I think, every year of their marriage. And then she also would isolate smaller sections of Scripture, a verse or two, for uh, Scripture meditation. Spurgeon did the same thing. He liked to uh, select a portion of a passage and meditate it. He, he compared meditating on the Scripture like uh, making wine. The grapes have to be crushed before the good wine can can be enjoyed. And for Spurgeon, meditation was like crushing the grapes of Scripture so that the good wine of Scripture could get into one's system and could uh, think on God's Word. So both of them read the Scripture uh, individually. Both of them meditated on the Scripture. 
And both of them were faithful in prayer uh, individually and collectively. So they read the scripture uh, individually and prayed individually. They also read the scripture and prayed as a couple, and they engaged in family worship. Uh, Typically at the Spurgeon home, that would have been most of the time, twice a day. And what that looked like was essentially reading the Bible, uh, Spurgeon giving some explanation of scripture, uh, praying, singing a hymn. Susie played the piano, so it was common that they would gather around and they might pull one of Ara Sankey's hymn books uh, out and she would play from that. They were friends with uh, Sankey and his and Deal Moody and his team. And then they would pray together. And everyone in the Spurgeon household, whether it was guest or family, or you know, they had a number of household employees, uh, everyone would gather for family worship. And when Spurgeon was out of town, uh, family worship continued. Uh, Susie would lead it when she was able, and when the sons got older, they could help with that. But family worship was a staple item in the Spurgeon home. And their, their objective was to know God and to worship God and to grow in the wisdom of God and His grace, and to and to increase their love for and understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I appreciate in that in that in that chapter you have a section where um, you mentioned that meditation wasn't for them a, a passive activity. You know, it wasn't it wasn't um, you know mind emptying, but but involved their brain. It involved thinking. They were very active and and meditation um well it was their spirituality that that helped shape their their shared mission together um Susie was totally on board with Charles's ministry wasn't she and and she often she often made sacrifices uh for them can you talk some about that yeah Susie was uh, fully on board of Charles's life and ministry and uh just when I, I thought a lot about her her sacrifice, and I'm still really stunned by the degree uh, that she did sacrifice and did so willingly. She wasn't manipulated into sacrificing. It wasn't something she did merely as a duty, but she delighted in in, in supporting Charles. And in doing so, she felt that uh, she was supporting his ministry and supporting the spread of the gospel. But uh, Charles Spurgeon became uh, very, very popular, very famous, he was in demand to speak, to write, to lead in numerous capacities. And very early in their marriage, he's away from home quite a bit. She sometimes traveled with him. In fact, she they were married in 1850, January of 1856. She became rather ill by 1868. But during that 12-year period, she did travel with him quite a bit and could minister with him like that. But but uh, primarily, over the course of their marriage, they were separated quite a bit, and she willingly gave him up. She made a decision during their engagement that she never wanted to hinder him from his public ministry of preaching, from his pastoring at the church, from his writing of books, all the things that he believed God had called him to. She entered into those things joyfully, and she gave him up. Uh, even when she felt that she might uh, need him herself closer at hand. No, he, of course, he loved her dearly. And whenever he was away, he made sure that all of her needs were attended to. She was not just abandoned and left alone. She was, she was cared for. Yeah. 
Well, when uh, when Charles published uh, lectures to my students in 1875, um, Susie, she had a a big effort in getting these books in the hands of pastors and and this resulted in in her uh, book fund. Um, can you tell us some about what that ministry was? Yeah, uh, you know I, th- I think of that uh, a scene connected to that book you mentioned, lectures to my students, volume one of that. It was just prior to publications, Spurgeon handed Susie a a proof copy of the book. And he asked her what she thought of it. And what's interesting to that to me as a pastor is, uh, you know, we, we appreciate when others appreciate our work, but nothing is more valuable than having our wife uh, share her appreciation and thanksgiving for the work that we do, for her to value it. And so Susie was really taken aback by the book. She was very thrilled with it. And she told Charles that she wished she could give every copy or that she wished they could give a copy to, of that book to every pastor in England. And Spurgeon looked at her and he challenged her. He said, well, Susie, why don't you make that happen? She didn't expect him to turn the tables like that, but uh, he did. And she prayed about that and she pulled some money that she had saved aside and and she invested in buying 100 copies of that book to send out. And that led to more requests and, and sending out more and more books. Funds would come in to help support that ministry. And from 1875 until her death in 1903, she gave away 200,000 books. That's a, a staggering number of books, 200,000 books, many of them by Spurgeon himself. But she also chose what she would consider staple items that every pastor needed. And a little bit of the context for that, she wasn't just randomly passing out books. Uh, England, the British Isles were filled with pastors who were suffering great poverty. Oftentimes they had a large family. They were barely keeping clothes on the backs of their children and wife and uh, food on the table and any sort of medical care. There was no money left over. There's no money to buy new clothes. There was no money to buy books. And so these pastors who love their families very much would not sacrifice new shoes for a child or food for their table in order to buy books. So they just went without. Uh, Many of them had only a few books to begin with. They had a Bible and and a few books. Uh, Most of them that Susie gave books to had not had a new book in a very long time. And so that bothered her. She learned more and more about the plight of these pastors and their wives, their children. She wanted to do something to help them. And so she, uh, there, was a, there were certain requirements to receive books from Susie, but one of the requirements was a pastor had to need the books. Uh, and so she didn't want to just, again, give books randomly, but she wanted to give books to pastors who needed them. And there's, there's really moving stories connected to pastors and their families. A, 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 a parcel of books would come in. The family would rejoice. The pastors would weep. They were so thankful. It was like Christmas morning um, to have a, a brand new book, a book that they could use immediately. And what Susie believed, the pastors would become better preachers, the churches would be stronger, and the gospel would uh, be extended through that ministry. 
And she would also help their wives from time to time. She would send uh, clothing. Uh, she would send other hi- household items that were needed. And on some occasions, was even send money. She was fully invested in this ministry. And it pleased Spurgeon so much because from the very early, his earliest days in London, in 1854, when he started at the church, then called the New Park Street Chapel, later the Metropolitan Tabernacle, he was investing in pastors, young pastors or pastors who felt called to the ministry, but had very little in the way of funds. He wanted to educate them. So this was just another way they carried on their ministry to poor pastors and their families. Their their support for one another is really quite clear there. Um and, and frankly, it was necessary, wasn't it? Because there would be hard labor and suffering ahead. Uh, talk to us some about, you know, what, what were some of the sufferings and afflictions and, and even controversies that, that the Spurgeons were able to battle together in marriage? Yeah, th- there was a number of controversies early in Spurgeon's ministry. A really good book on that subject is by Ian Murray, and it's called The Forgotten Spurgeon. Uh, but the last controversy is the one most known to folks. It's called the downgrade controversy. It started around, I think, 1887, and it involved what Spurgeon saw as liberalism seeping into the Baptist Union. And so Spurgeon tried to be a, a force for good and to bring correction to the Union, but instead of that being well received, it was rejected. And Spurgeon was ultimately censured. And so the last years of his life, he had a broken heart because not only did the union as a whole uh, disagree with Spurgeon's view that liberalism had slipped in on key fundamental doctrines, uh, it was also some of his students that he had trained over the course of his lifetime. Uh, Not all, but some of his own students abandoned him and some that had been uh, his friends for a very long time. So that, that really crushed him. In fact, when he died in 1892, Susie was by his side, and she said that even in the, the, the last period of his life, the last weeks of his life, he was still thinking about the downgrade controversy and was still deeply saddened because of the, the loss and the pain and the price that had been paid for that. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't sorry that he fought the battle. He thought it needed to be fought. And I think history has vindicated him on that. But that's just one of several theological controversies. He was a he battled for the truth. He believed the Bible was God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, and sufficient word. And he defended that. But early on in their marriage, they they faced numerous sufferings. Uh, the first year of their marriage, just a few weeks after the birth of their twins, was the great Surrey Gardens Music Hall disaster, which uh, Spurgeon's fame had increased so much the church was renting out other facilities to help them uh, accommodate some of the people that wanted to hear Spurgeon. You know, this particular late October evening, Sunday evening, 10,000 people gathered inside, 10,000 people outside. Uh, Spurgeon's beginning the service. Some mischief makers come in and cry, fire, fire, there is no fire. And uh, seven people are trampled to death. Uh, Almost 30 others are hospitalized. Spurgeon collapses he almost quit the ministry. Uh, he, he fell into a deep, dark depression. Interestingly, though, he was back in the pulpit two weeks later at his church. And then four weeks later, he's back in the same place at the, at the, uh, the music hall preaching again. 
so that had a, a long-term effect on him. He already struggled some with depression, but this this was a trauma that that raised its ugly head time and again in his ministry and sunk him very low. They both had health issues. Spurgeon had kidney problems. He had gout. Uh, and those problems contributed to weight gain that afflicted him uh, as he got older. Susie in 1869 or late 1868, early 1869, had surgery. Uh, we think some sort of uh, issue connect to, um, you know, uh, her ability to have children, uh, some uh, female issue, if you will. And she, uh, they never had any more children, and she suffered great pain, really, all of her, uh, much of the rest of her life. She was an invalid, essentially, from 1869 until her death in 1903, though there was a period of recovery uh, around the time of Spurgeon's death for her. So they both had to grapple with uh, sickness and affliction, uh, separation. Spurgeon's away a lot, and toward, as he gets older, the last 20 years of their marriage, in fact, Spurgeon is often away three months of the year just to find help for his health. His doctor recommending going to a warmer climate on the uh, south of France, on the French Riviera. And he does go there and he does get relief and is able to come back and minister again. But Susie's situation is such, her doctor says you really can't travel. And she had to stay home. He had to leave. So that also added stress and challenge to their marriage. Well, the suffering is a, a really important theme that you draw out, draw out in the book. Um, another another theme is communication in marriage, and um, you know Charles and Susie they seem to really enjoy each other, and and a simple component of their happiness seemed to be their ability to express both love and concerns um, through good seasons and more difficult ones uh, to each other. Um, but like you said, Charles was gone often traveling and such. And, 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 you know, he would, he would get tired and things like that at the end of the Lord's day. Um, tell us how communications serve them well in times like these. Yes. I would say this is one of my favorite, uh, things about Charles and Susie's marriage and something that is both convicting to me and encouraging to me. Uh, Spurgeon, was a great communicator. Uh, not only in the, we think of him as communicating in the pulpit, we think of him as the prince of preachers, but he's also the prince of lovers in this regard. He knew how to talk to his wife and he knew how to listen to her. And as you mentioned, they had lots of fun together when they're at home and able, uh, they're walking around the property together, hand in hand, enjoying nature. Uh, the birds, trees, their garden, their cows, their horses, all of that. And they have great communication along those lines. And you're right, on um, many Sunday evenings, and lots of pastors could attest to the way they feel at the end of the Lord's Day, Spurgeon would come home completely exhausted and emotionally uh, exhausted as well. And he would, he would be sad, and uh, Susie would read to him. He especially liked for her to read the poetry of George Herbert, and that poetry tended to lift him up. But sometimes he would begin weeping, uh, and Susie would weep as well. She would weep simply because she loved him, she said. And that in itself was a form of communication, the way they connected and they sympathized and empathized with one another. They were compassionate like that. 
and one of the one of the really most amazing things to me is really hard to believe almost that with all the travel that Spurgeon was engaged in uh, and the, the nights he was separated from Susie, he wrote her a letter every day. Uh, and it wasn't as easy as we might think, uh, though it's not quite the same, is it, to send a text or an email or uh, at any moment in my life and yours, probably, we've got messages coming from numerous sources through technology. But Spurgeon took a dip pen and he dipped it in his inkwell and he wrote her a letter. And these letters are most wonderful and fascinating. They include everything from, Susie, would you pray for me? I feel as I'm not as spiritually vibrant as I once was. Uh, everything from that to s- jokes that he would make or humor that he would bring into their uh, his letter to sketches. At times, Spurgeon would sketch out something he had seen, uh, very descriptive of his experiences and uh, his ups and his downs, but just wonderful, happy, joyful, thoughtful, kind communication. And Susie was concerned. She says, I don't want to be a burden to you. Don't don't feel, essentially, she's saying, don't feel as if you have to write me every day. And Spurgeon said, never think like that. It is not a burden. It is my delight to write to you. And you just got to imagine how that made her feel and how loved she felt and she was. And it was truly that. That's one way that he kept connected to Susie when he was on the road. And then she would write him as well. It was, in fact, the, a letter that uh, was used to form the title of our book, Yours Till Heaven. Uh, but just prior, just a couple of weeks prior to their marriage, spurt, it was in December of 1850. Uh, 1855, Spurgeon was going to leave London to go visit his parents in Colchester for a short time. And uh, Susie was left behind. So they were saying their goodbyes and Spurgeon boarded a train and the train left and he picked up his pen. He wrote her a letter. This is what he would do for the rest of his life. And he signed that letter, yours till heaven. And then and so there on the eve of their marriage, he's reminding Susie that uh, he belonged to her and her only for the rest of their lives together. And he anticipated a joyful reunion at uh, their deaths where they around the throne of God would love one another perfectly, not as husband and wife, but as Christians uh, glorified in the presence of Jesus. They would worship God, love God perfectly and love one another perfectly as well. So I think I was as moved by their love letters to one another is almost any other aspect of their marriage. Yeah, that's great. Um, you know, and you know, for all for all uh, Charles Spurgeon's intellectual brilliance, he he was a man and he had his limits. And so, you know, the ways that Susie would, you know, help him even in preparation for um, preaching and other ministries, you know, encouraging him to rest when he needed it. Um, you know, opening up their own home for conferences, things like that. It seemed like working together, helping one another was a, was a sort of refreshment for them. Um, and that's kind of what you talk about in this next chapter. Uh, but if we jump ahead to the following one, um, let me ask this. Do you get the sense that uh, the Spurgeons had fun together? Um, did, did they laugh? 
Oh, yes. They laughed a lot, I think. It's a set of Spurgeon, essentially, that he could walk into a room of people and within just a moments, everyone would be laughing. He was a man, even though he suffered with depression, he was a man of great happiness, great joy. He loved to laugh, and he did not think that laughing was incongruent with the Christian faith at all. He, uh, the Christian faith had room to laugh and to celebrate the goodness of God, and the, the, it's a joyful faith. And Spurgeon expressed that with laughter, and he and Susie laughed together. Uh, they would do that as they walked. Uh, they would do that as they sat in their uh, living room together, as they traveled. You know, Susie, as, as I mentioned, she traveled with Charles the first 12 years of their marriage, and they traveled across the uh, the Alps together, uh, the Swiss Alps. And Charles often would be riding in his carriage with his publisher talking books, and Susie's out hiking ahead of him. But it was during those travels that they really had some great times and romantic times and uh, times of great fun as well. Spurgeon said, cheerfulness is the sunshine. <clears throat> Excuse me. Cheer- cheerfulness is the sunshine of the heart. And their marriage certainly reflected that. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, yeah, I appreciate one one thing you mentioned that they thought, you know, um, joy and, and delight and laughter. You know, these were things for all all Christians. And that's that's what they thought. Joyless Christianity was was an oxymoron to to Charles and Susie. Um, well, in the next chapter, you you touch on uh, the creativity of Charles and Susie in their marriage. Um, tell us what you're hoping to get across there in this chapter. Yeah, you know, th- this chapter uh, kind of captured Charles and Susie at their home and uh, some of their experiences together. They had they had to be creative because of the unusual sort of life that Spurgeon had and and Charles and Susie had together again. Spurgeon did not seek to be a celebrity, and he was not a celebrity in the way we might think of a music star or movie star, that sort of thing. But people did want to be near him, and his time was, uh, much of his time was demanded. And so they had to be creative. And when that means, and when Spurgeon's at home, that Susie's going to be as close to him as possible, even when he's working at times, she's actually helping him in sermon prep. It was not uncommon on a Saturday night for Charles to call Susie into his study and ask her to read from commentaries, to read out loud while he's thinking through a particular passage of Scripture. And she delighted in that because it brought them together. As well, they uh, they opened their homes, uh, their home to uh, students, to various guests. I mentioned D.L. Moody earlier. Uh, they they both uh, loved the Moody's and enjoyed fellowship with them. Saturdays, lots of guests in and out of the Spurgeon home. But Spurgeon would do just creative things as well to express his affection for Susie. And one example is uh, the, the first day of, of postcards came out, and Spurgeon wrote her a, a love letter on a postcard, and he wrote it up and down. Uh, so she had to read to, to read and get the the gist of the letter. Uh, she had to read it uh, down and then up, down and then up, down and then up, line after line again. And uh, that was a delightful experience for her. But he also said he, he enjoyed sending her a love letter on a postcard. 
because his unblushing expressions of affection for her could be exposed to anybody in the mail service who might want to read them. He was unashamed of his love for Susie. And this little creative uh, tidbit here is just an example of that. When uh, Susie died in 1903, their son Thomas said of his dad that he was unashamed of his love for Susie. He put it down in print and he told anyone that would listen how he felt about her. It reminds me of the passage in the Song of Solomon when the, the lady there said of her beloved that his banner over me is love. And I think that's the way Susie felt and Charles felt of each other. But Susie felt that Charles's banner over her was, was love. So lots of uh, experiences in their home in this chapter, uh, how they were creative and and finding a way to celebrate even their anniversary, uh, because both of them were sick on the day of their anniversary. So Spurgeon connected their anniversary to a deacon's meeting, and it turned into a great uh, fun time of, of friends and others there with him. Uh, so there's just a, a lot of examples of how they used their creativity to bind them closer together. Yeah, that's that's very good. I thought this chapter brought brought just a really nice uh, portrait of what their marriage looked like. Um, well, we've talked about their spirituality, their shared mission, enduring through suffering, creative efforts to maintain joy and 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 the wonder in marriage. Um, they were both deeply compassionate people too. Uh, and you evidence this feature in their marriage partly by a relationship that they had with an African-American missionary who had been a slave in Virginia before the Civil War. His name was Thomas Johnson. Um, tell us about their relationship with Johnson. Yeah, uh, Spurgeon heard about Johnson from a friend who had written Spurgeon asking if Johnson could attend the pastor's college. And Spurgeon said, bring him along, uh, bring him on, send him over. And uh, Johnson, who had lived in America, had traveled over to England, uh, was uh, then sent to Spurgeon's college. And Spurgeon put him through there. And ultimately, uh, he spoke at Spurgeon's church. And Charles and Susie supported he and his wife and another couple in their mission, uh, missionary endeavors to Africa. And they became lifelong friends. In fact, Thomas Johnson would say that he had no better friends than Charles and and Susie Spurgeon. Uh, one, uh, he wrote a letter to uh, to Susie, and he he included in, uh, to Charles and Susie, and included in that letter to tell Mrs. Spurgeon to keep inching along. Jesus Christ will come by and by. They were just dear friends, and uh, when they were visiting Charles and Susie, Char- they would ask Thomas Johnson and his wife about their times in captivity. And the music, uh, you know, many of the slaves that were Christians really found great comfort in singing gospel songs. And Charles and Susie wanted to hear them sing those songs, and it just moved them to tears. Johnson wrote a book himself. Uh, he, uh, it's, t- it's entitled 28 Years a Slave or the Story of My Life in Three Continents. And in that book, he talks about his experiences as a slave, as a pastor, and as a student at Spurgeon's Pastors College, as well as his life as a missionary in Africa and an evangelist. Uh, so when once he became a Christian, he uh, 
sought to grow in Christ. And he, he heard about Spurgeon from slave from his uh, from his masters when he was yet a slave. They didn't speak too kindly of Spurgeon because Spurgeon had opposed slavery. And that was not received well in Virginia and by the masters of Thomas Johnson. But that seed was planted in his heart. And when he was released from slavery and able to get his hands on a Spurgeon book, he used that book in his own ministry. Uh, one kind of interesting story about Johnson, too, it tells you the depth of their relationship. He was in attendance at both Charles's funeral in 1892, and he was in attendance at Susie's funeral in 1893. Uh, so they had a close friendship, and Charles and Susie supported him in every way that they could. Yeah. Well, well, perhaps one one other feature, maybe the most important feature of, of Charles and Susie's marriage was their shared hope of eternal glory with Christ in heaven. And, um, you know, when Charles's health would fade, um, you know, Susie would die 11 years later, 1903. Um, tell us about the final years of their marriage and, and, and about the eternal vision that, that captivated them as they neared life's end. Yeah, the final years of their marriage is, uh, was the best of times and the worst of times, to, to use Charles Dickens's uh, book, Great Expectations. It was the, the best of time, it's times in that Charles' ministry continued to grow throughout his lifetime. The Lord continued blessing. He, he had a very, as you know, a very Christ-centered uh, ministry. It was all about the gospel and Christ, and that he never deviated from that. He always proclaimed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that sinners could be made right with God by God's grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He preached that, he wrote that, he, he spoke that as he went through his life. And so his ministry continued, his books were, uh, was, were sent all over the place and influencing others. He was training pastors, wonderful, uh, wonderful fruit from Spurgeon's life and ministry. But as I mentioned earlier, the downgrade controversy. And so if we look at the last years of their life is starting with that in 1887, uh, that's indicative of some of the worst of times that he experienced as well. The broken heart over the controversy, over the loss of friendships and all the rest. And along with that, uh, Spurgeon's health continued to decline. Susie, it seems, was improving somewhat. Praise be to God for that. So uh, there's there's bad health, uh, and yet there's still gospel preaching and gospel writing and fruit from his ministry. There's controversy. Spurgeon's still traveling. But a, a really wonderful story in uh, October of 1891. You know, Spurgeon had been traveling to Montan, France, on the French Riviera since 1871, one of his desires was not one of his desires was not met uh, during that time, and that was that Susie was never able to travel with him. Her health would not allow. But God really did a wonderful thing in 1891. He strengthened Susie, and for the first time ever, she was able to take a trip with him to Montan. And so when they arrived there, Charles was so excited. I mean, it was like they were on their honeymoon. Here he is almost, uh, he's 57 years old, and he's like a schoolboy in love almost. He shows her his favorite sights, and he says, Susie, wasn't it worth a thousand miles just to see this or just to see that? 
And Susie thought later, as she reflected on that, she said it was it was beautiful indeed. But the greatest delight of all was seeing how happy he was having me with him. And so they really had essentially three months of what she described as perfect happiness, uh, something that had been missing in many ways. They were together, uh, not happiness in general, but just the happiness and time together. They had extensive time together. Uh, they enjoyed the land and they enjoyed one another's company. They enjoyed worshiping God together. Uh, and it, it proved to be the last time Spurgeon would ever go to Montan, and he would never return to London alive. He didn't know that when he left in October. Susie certainly didn't know that. But uh, about mid-January of 1892, Spurgeon fell uh, ill and was in bed. And really, the last 10 days or so, he, he was never able to get out of bed again. He would have brief moments in which he could speak. And uh, he wrote, he had them send a note and an offering to his church in London, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. But he and Susie were together in really delightful times. And she was at his bedside as he died. And she was there when he died. It's a very moving scene because soon after he died, Susie prayed and she thanked the Lord for Spurgeon's life and for their marriage and sought God's comfort and God's help. Spurgeon's body was sent back to London. They had a service for him there in Montan. His body was sent back to London for really a week of services. Susie remained, uh, probably because of her health and probably because of just the sadness of seeing her beloved die. So she remained. She did not return to London for any of the funeral services. She recovered in one of Spurgeon's friends' places there, beautiful place uh, just outside of Montan. And then she came home and she wondered what was next for her. And she believed that God would have her to continue uh, working with the book fund, which she did to, until her death in 1892. But, but you're right. They had, an, they had an eternal vision. And I think that's one of the things that kept them uh, pressing forward through hard times, is that their eyes were fixed firmly on the Lord Jesus Christ. Their confidence was in the promises of his word, and they looked forward to one day being with Christ and all of their problems put away. But the greatest joy of all was seeing Christ and seeing one another and all the saints of glory worshiping God. Yeah, that's great. You draw on Bunyan uh, when, when you talk about them as, as two pilgrims on their journey to the celestial city. Ray, as we're wrapping up now, um, tell us how can, how can Spurgeon's marriage, uh, how can their story help, help the saints today as they're journeying, journeying in, in marriage together? Yeah, I think few things outside of the scripture itself are more helpful to uh, a couple or an individual Christian for that matter as reading uh, biography reading church history, reading stories from those who've gone before us and learning from their lives, the positives, the negatives, the ups, the downs, all of the experiences. And in my view, that's that's more helpful typically to me than uh, a book that says, here's here's 10 things to do or 10 things not to do. But to let, uh, let a reader kind of see that in the story itself. And in the Spurgeon's marriage, uh, what we have, not a perfect marriage, a very real marriage that suffers in the same way that many marriages suffer with health issues and, and uh, 
parenting challenges and separations due to work and all the all the things that's pretty normal to couples today. But what we have is a committed marriage, a loving marriage, a thoughtful marriage, a persevering marriage, a godly marriage. And in their example, I think there's hope. We learn how we can better communicate. We learn how we can better treat uh, our partners well. We learn how we can persevere through hard times and keep the faith. And, and we learn how we can love the Lord and his people well. So I just, to me, that's, that, that's me. I, I think the lessons are in the story. And I know of no other marriage in Christian history that's any better to learn from than that of Charles and Susie Spurgeon. Yeah, that's really well said. Well, Ray, we've taken up some of your time now discussing this. It's a really sweet book. Uh, but before we wrap up, can you tell us uh, what you're working on next? Are, th- are there any more books on the Spurgeons to come in the future? Or, or will you perhaps maybe take some time off from writing and, and continue pastoring? Yeah, of course, I'll continue. Uh, plan to, God willing, continue pastoring. Uh, have a wonderful church. I've been serving for uh, 16 or 17 years now. So plan to continue to do that. I, I do plan to continue writing. I've got a few pr- uh, proposals out there. Uh, uh, well, I have a, a another Spurgeon-related proposal out there, and it's uh, so it's I can't really say much about that because it's just in the pr- proposal state at the moment. But I do have some other opportunities to write, and uh, and to and primarily, I think my writing will be focused on on uh, biography and stories from the past. Um, that seems to be the way the Lord has inclined my heart at this time, at least. So, uh, yeah, I hope that uh, you'll hear something else in the near future. Uh, right now, we're hard at work trying to get the word out about uh, Charles and Susie's marriage through Yours Till Heaven. Well, that sounds wonderful, Ray. Uh, but for now, thanks so much for writing this book. Um, it's titled Yours Till Heaven. It's the Untold Love Story of Charles and Susie Spurgeon. It's out this month with Moody Publishers. And Ray, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you, Zach, for having me and many blessings to you. Thanks. And thanks to everyone for listening. I'll see you again next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. Thank you.